lasso. So for the meditation this afternoon, I'd like to return to really the essence of the meditative practices for the entire seven-point mind training. As we'll see time and time again, it may, it may look really quite redundant, but he's simply hammering the nail in deeper and deeper that the core practices here are the essential ones, and that's the ultimate and relative bodhicitta. And as we'll see, the applicability, the relevance to them or of them to all circumstances is just quite universal. And so for this session, what I'd like to do is really leave it quite wide open. Once again, leave it, un, how do you say, no multitasking, no guidance for me during it. Um, and just coming back to these. Now, in terms of the ultimate bodhicitta, again, we're just giving it our best shot, you know, our best approximation. So maybe that's just resting in awareness of awareness. Or even settling the mind is an approximation. It's going in that direction, right? Or it can be the merging mind with space, explicitly taught as a practice that can lead to Realization of Rikpa, or as I've also, as you remember, have given a couple of days of introduction to the threefold space, which is definitely Vipassana-style, Dzogchen-style meditation. And some of you have really resonated with that. So why not? So we, it's a, all a matter of familiarization, just com- coming back to it, coming back to it. Once you've understood it, you know, you've heard it, you've, you know how to do it, then you have that one level of understanding. And then you, as you reflect upon it, you engage with it, you see how the teachings are relating to your own experience. You know experientially what you know, those various terms refer to. Um, then you're, another level of understanding is arising, understanding from reflection, from thinking. And then when you get that, at that point, then actually now you're ready to meditate. Now you're ready to meditate. Then you just go, then it's familiarization. Then it's just going right back into it and going deeper and deeper and deeper, not necessarily modifying the practice, just going deeper. And I, I, I cannot emphasize the following point too strongly, and that is, to the best of your ability, when you, you're doing it as well as you can, and you, when you're doing the practice as well as you can, you've understood it from hearing, you've thought about it, you know how to do it, you're not confused, and you're doing it as well as you can, you know, then know that you're doing it as well as you can, and take satisfaction in that. Still, a number of you are not quite giving yourself that much generosity, you know, not giving yourself a little bit of credit. Still second-guessing. Oh, I think I'm maybe not, sure, not quite sure I'm doing it right, or I'm not doing it very well, or I'm doing it badly. If you had a child who was not exceptionally bright, but going through school and trying hard, getting average grades, but the child really isn't academically gifted. Maybe the gift is someplace else. Maybe it's for sports. Maybe it's music, art, who knows what, but not really academically gifted. And so as trying as hard as, let's say, he can, he's getting just average grades, you know, Bs, Cs, like that. Well, you can, every time your child comes home, say, well, I see you suck again. You know, you suck again. I see you're letting me down again. You're five years old, ten years, you're still letting him down, you're still just average, I was hoping for better. Fifteen years old, yeah. you still suck. And that's pretty cruel, isn't it? Some of you are doing that to yourselves. You know? I think it's, why is it any less cruel to treat a child like that who's really trying his best? You know? Why is that any less cruel to do that to yourself? I don't think it's very kind. So, how about, hey, you're doing as well as you can, and that's how you achieve shamatha. Everybody at stage one sucks compared to stage two. Everybody at stage three 
it's two, sucks compared to three. People who have only achieved shamatha but not vipassana suck compared to vipassana. And those who have only realized the emptiness but haven't realized rikpa, I'm sorry, you suck. So where do you want to be? You, know? you want to give yourself a bit of a break? And say, hey, this is how you achieve shamatha. Not by telling, how, telling yourself how much you suck all the time, how bad your meditations are, but trying as well as you can and then taking satisfaction in that. Okay? It's a strong point. Not everybody had gotten it inside. Maybe now's a good time to start. So for this session, some time for your best approximation of ultimate bodhicitta and some time for the Tonglen practice as well as you can. And if there are multiple ways of going like it, and you should kind of play with it, just like with jazz, you, you have a theme. I think there's such a thing as a jazz score, but then a good, good jazz musician is never going to play it quite the same way each time, right? And so, like, so, and so likewise, so play the jazz, you know, with the, with the Tonglen practice. With one variation here, another variation there, sometimes letting it be really free and open. On the other hand, if somebody crops up in your meditation or just in your, your ruminations repeatedly, comes and knocks on your door when you're not meditating, and you see there's some kind of an issue there, maybe some negativity, some, you know, some bad feeling or some unresolved issues, you might want to go back to that and say, hello, I, I, I hear we're having a bit of a problem. In my mind, I don't know about your mind, but I can only fix one mind at a time and I have to start with this one. Right? And so I don't know if there's any problem from your side at all, but I know there is, and you might be dead, in which case, you know, good luck. But I got this thing going on in my mind. And so you might invite that person to your mind's eye, living or dead. Practice only. So you've, you've cleaned your own house. Other people have to clean their own house. But at least if we can clean our own house, that's one step in the right direction. Good? Okay. So which comes first? How long each one? What mode each one? That's your baby. Time to practice. So we return to the text. But I'm not quite ready to move on from the last aphorism. I think for reasons that will become clear soon, there's still a little bit more to talk about. The power of prayer, that one. We looked at it a little bit in terms of Buddhist context, relationship of karma and blessings, karma and the activities of the great bodhisattvas, Buddhas and so forth. So I won't linger there. There's a lot of very good literature out there. Uh, but this is raising this much larger issue that really very important, not only for Buddhist practice, but for any kind of spiritual practice. Uh, has to do with, let's use the word spirit, because a lot of us would say that we're engaging in spiritual practice. I do. And what I mean by that, spiritual practice, just my definition, no big deal, I'm going to be really quick here. But when I speak of spiritual practice, I'm not referring to spirits, or necessarily Buddha, or karma, or God, or angels. But spiritual practices, I'm using it, it's rather kind of like practical way, is we're engaging in spiritual practice if our way of viewing reality, our values, our way of life, our practice is oriented towards the cultivation and the realization of genuine happiness. And even if we're meditating and studying and doing all kinds of stuff, but it's really all for the sake of greater hedonic well-being, maybe good, I mean, at least harmless, maybe productive, but I don't call that spiritual practice. If it's really all about hedonic, then that's hedonic, that's worldly. So that's just a definition, but I find it quite practical. But we do have this issue of spirit, spirit. So we, earlier we had this whole issue of making offerings to spirits, okay? And Atisha is saying this. He's drawing from the whole culture of 
Buddhist India, as well as Hindu India for that matter, become the, the culture of that in, in Tibet. I mean, nobody really doubted it any more than I doubt that there's a, a single person here or listening by podcast who doubts the existence of viruses. Have you ever seen one? Probably not. But you're assuming that somebody has, and that somebody was not a dope or a, a hallucinating, but actually has special means of observation that you don't have. But if you really trained yourself, you could learn how to use a microscope so that you could identify a virus when you saw it. So we all have that confidence, and we believe it. And of course, viruses have causal efficacy, which is why we care about them at all. So spirits, okay? do they exist or not? Everybody outside of, really pretty much everybody on the globe who is not kind of indoctrinated in science or particularly scientific materialism believes it. So it's a minority of people on the planet nowadays. And, and a couple of hundred years ago, it was like a minority of nothing. I mean, not, not, almost nobody disbelieved in the existence of spirits. Doesn't mean they're right, but you know, there were a lot of people believing they aren't, weren't all stupid. So there's that kind of spirit. And as I mentioned, they really don't occupy my mind very much. I'm not giving much time to attending to them. So practically speaking, just for me, they're not terribly real. Not that I disbelieve them, but just they're, I'm kind of busy. That's what it really boils down to. I'm kind of busy, Shamadev, Vipassana, Dzogchen, and that kind of occupies my mind a lot. Because I'm going to die really quickly and, you know, dealing with the spirits. Okay. Wish you well, good luck. If you want to help me, please do. Thank you. And I'm just, you know, on my way. So there's one kind of spirit. Then we have... Spirit, as in the Christian tradition, Holy Spirit. Okay, this is something from God, from the divine, from the transcendent. Oh, crucially important for all theistic traditions. Buddhism, according, is kind of hard to classify, theistic, non-theistic, whatever. Atheistic, that's really a stretch. People who speak of atheism and Buddhism, like you, you're, you can be both. Okay, well, what are you talking about? If you've thrown out any notion of the divine, the transcendent, of blessing, of the Buddha having really extraordinary knowledge, then, I mean, there's just no reason to call that Buddhist. You're deceiving people. Sorry, but you are. Or maybe you're just deceiving yourself, but that means you're still deceiving other people. That's fraudulent. So, but there's that. That's transcendent dimension. So we have spirits kind of like they're just fellow sentient beings. That's horizontal, right? But when we go to blessings of the Buddha, making prayers to the Buddhas, to the yidams, the, the you know, personal deities, to dharma protectors, to, to bodhisattvas, to great beings of the past, to Tsongkhapa, to Padmasambhava, and so forth. This is clearly vertical. We're looking up, right? And then are we receiving anything back, or is this simply a soliloquy, just talking to ourselves? Well, this is an enormously big deal. I mean, in Mahayana Buddhism, if you throw that out, you say, well, I'm sorry, but you don't have any, Mahayana, any more Mahayana Buddhism. You take that little piece out, and you just got a lot of psychotherapy, which is very nice. Psychotherapy is good, but this is no longer Mahayana Buddhism. Vajrayana Buddhism, forget about it. Dzogchen, forget about it. People who are materialists and think they're, they're practicing Dzogchen. I'm sorry, but you're fooling yourself. So there's that second meaning of spirit. And that what really matters here is to spirits horizontally, do they, have any, do, we, do they do anything that matters to us? Do they have any causal efficacy? Do they help or harm? If they don't, I mean, really, as far as our world, why should we care? Right? Um, and so do they do anything? Well, again, the whole Buddhist tradition says, yeah, they do, they do. There's these whole realms, pratas, beings in the bardo and so forth. Yeah, they, they, they have as much causal efficacy as anything else. as a football or a golf club. Um, so there's that. And then, very importantly, when you're offering prayers, here he says, this is part of the practice. If you're offering prayers, does anything happen, not just because you're imagining it, but does anything happen to the, from the side of those you're praying to, Right? Yes or no? If no, then you may as well forget that and you may as well forget Mahayana Buddhism because, again, all you have is shell fragments. And so causal efficacy, really boiling down to causal efficacy. 
because if the Buddhists don't do anything for us, then the whole notion of achieving enlightenment in order to be of greatest possible benefit is just meaningless noise, right? So causal efficacy, it's boiling down to that. And spirits, as they're understood, are not made of atoms, as we understand them. The dharmakaya, not made of atoms, as we, not, not matter or energy, as we understand it. And then we have a third one that should really strike home, up close and personal, very intimate. And that is the human spirit. Human spirit. Esprit. Geist. Okay, let's call it, we don't, we, need, we don't need a special term. We have the ordinary terms. Mind, intention, volition, consciousness. All these are bound up with your spirit, you know. Uh, and so, do we believe that there is anything apart from the brain that we can call consciousness, intention, memories, compassion, mental processes, consciousness itself that's not just physical? Yes or no? If it's just physical, if that's all there is to it, then we just have to get real, real quickly and not, pretend, not, and not delude ourselves. If the mind is nothing more than the brain, then the brain is made of only physical stuff, no mystical stuff, and that means it operates according to the laws of physics, chemistry, and biology. Let's not be kind of like mystical here. That's, that's it. Laws of physical chemistry, physics, chemistry, biology, everything happening in the brain is operating according to those if that's all that's taking place, which means you are a robot. People like to do a lot of fancy footwork here. I'm a materialist. Oh, I believe in free will. I, I'm a materialist, but I believe in blah, blah, blah. I'm sorry. I'm a really... Uh, yeah, I have <coughs> bullshit, you know. I bet it's physics, chemistry, and biology, there's nothing left over. So don't put a happy face on it. Don't try to fool yourself. You've just identified yourself as a robot. Everybody else is a robot. So see if you can live with that really. And if you can't, then why don't you stop talking about it? Because even you are not willing to live according to that. You're not willing to make that your view? Then why don't you be quiet? Because nobody else wants to live by it either. Unless it has to be true. Then show it. So I'm going to continue here. There's fresh material. And I wouldn't do this if I were living 100 years ago. I'd say, oh, thank goodness. We're not going to talk about this. We don't have to spend a day or two on this. Thank goodness. We can just go on with the text. There's more, there's more juicy stuff coming just in the straight teaching from 1,000 years ago. You know, there's really good stuff coming. We're not finished yet. But I'm, I'm pausing here because for the last 150 years, a particular ideology has thrown us into a dark age. And I'm not speaking metaphorically or blah, blah, blah. Um, I, a dark age. It just it put a bag over our heads. It's, it's asphyxiating the imagination. But, I, but I, I'd like to be as charitable as I can. Sometimes I have our time. But when I look at this beloved tradition that I respect, that I've studied rather extensively, practice some, and that is science, it's 400 years old. 400 years old. Uh, you, 450, you want to be generous and include Copernicus. He was more of, more of a mathematician than he was a scientist, but a darn good one. So 450 years. I was thinking about this in my meditation and practicing Donglen to the, advoc and the, ad the proponents who are militantly anti-religious and, and dogmatically pro-materialism and really practicing Donglen in my last session. I, I got a little bit of headway there. And it really occurred to me that from, if we take Copernicus, who was really a mathematician, he never made one observation, no discovery, but brilliant mathematics. He, he certainly deserves a lot of credit. Um, so late 16th century. Through Galileo, who was the first full-fledged 100% scientist, he was really brilliant. He did everything. Mathematics, technology, observations, experiments. He was, he was the archetype. He was the, the paradigm of this is what a really brilliant scientist is. And he was fantastic. 
And then Kepler, who was a, con a contemporary, another one, didn't make any observations, but a br brilliant mathematician. So for that period, that really, that marvelous infancy, almost like the, the uh, conception, it really was more of a concept than anything else from Copernicus. And then the growth of the fetus with Kepler and Galileo, these giants. And then the birthing, let's say in 1609, why don't we give it a date? Happy birthday, 1609, Galileo publishes the story messenger of his fantastic discovery. It must have been such a thrill. You know, it's, it's great science. And then we go through the 17th century, we see one great one after another until the magnificent Newton. We can say, hey, you're no longer an infant. You're a, you're a child. You're a child of wonder. You're a child of nature. Uh, many regard him as the greatest scientist of all time, Isaac Newton. Really, he was everything, too. He was an experimenter, mathematician, developed calculus together with Leibniz on the other side of the English Channel. And so childhood, and enjoy it. You're frolicking in the, the world of nature. You know, fantastic. And so we move through childhood, through the, then through the beginning of the, through the, uh, that's it, through, the, through the 18th century, really growing up, growing up, expanding in, in terms of physics, chemistry, gradually biology. Get into the 19th century, and now it's definitely well through childhood, and I'd say 1859, science hit adolescence, the teenage years. Publish, public, uh, publication of Darwin, the brilliant scientist, brilliant scientist, deserves the credit that he's gotten. Uh, of course, Charles Darwin, publication of The Origin of Species. But suddenly they hit adolescence, and they're really smart, you know, but they are really adolescent. Because Darwin himself took this brilliant theory of his, which he co-discovered, but he elaborated more than Alfred Russell Wallace. Uh, and instead of being satisfied with it as a science, he, with a lot of help from his friends like T. Thomas H. Huxley, went beyond the evidence. And they said, this is the whole picture. This is, this is all explanatory. They turned Darwinianism into a religion, into something that goes way beyond the evidence. And they said, from now on, everything has to fit within this umbrella. Nothing outside of this. Nothing outside of this. And so for this new movement, it was T.H. Huxley, who was called Darwin's bulldog, called it the church scientific. The church scientific. If, uh, if Darwin was the Christ for this new movement, then T.H. Huxley was his, was his St. Paul, the great evangelist. And he idealized this church scientific as gaining, the ideal was to gain intellectual domination over the entire world and all of humanity. He said so, you know, the church scientific. In other words, move out of the way, pops. Move out of the way, you philosophers. Mom and dad, you are antiquated. I know more than you, and whatever you knew is pre-me, and therefore it doesn't count. So philosophy before us, don't need to look at it anymore. We've outgrown you. Theology before us, Modern science is rooted in, Christian, in, in Christian theology. That is an undeniable fact. Theology sucks. You don't know anything. I know more about everything than you do. In fact, I know pretty much everything. Everything that will come to, will be within my understanding. And sometimes I hate you. I hate you, Dad. I hate you, Mom. Because I know much more than you do. And that's been going on for 150 years now. It's still going on. And that's really time to grow up. So where do we go from here? This whole notion, and I'm speaking of scientific materialism, and I'm not speaking of science, because there are so many brilliant scientists, open-minded open -minded scientists 
in the 19th century, the 20th century, and the 21st. This is not a generalization about science. Within that, and actually not even within that, going along with, parallel with science, is this church scientific, which its creed is not scientific knowledge. In fact, the creed is the dogma of scientific materialism. That there's only one way to understand reality, that is the scientific methods, observing objective, physical, quantifiable phenomena. So it's a, it's a methodology. We have the only way. Well, they picked this up from a real Christian fundamentalist. Ever heard of that one before? We have the only way to salvation. We have the only way to truth. We have the only book that's truly a holy book. They're saying the same thing, except that their book has also four gospels. Matter, energy, space, and time. Everything has to fit in those four gospels, and we are the only ones who know how to read the book. And so the same religious fundamentalism that has plagued Christianity, Judaism, Buddhism, and so forth has now been embraced wholeheartedly by this mm, fundamentalist branch of the church scientific. But it's not everybody. And so, for example, I found this quite intriguing. According to a poll published in the Scientific American in 1914, so very much in the, you know, the heyday of this whole burgeoning of materialism and so forth, uh, there, a poll was done, and it turned out that 40% of scientists... This was done in America, the United States. 40% of scientists stated that they believe in God, and this is specifically a God who responds to prayer, not just some kind of inert God sitting out there like, you know, like a paperweight, but one actually responds to prayer. 40%. Very significant. But that's 1914. So now I just kind of like to play with you a little bit. Uh, if we move this up by you know, 80 years or so, Right through, let's just move it right through the 20th century. 20th century widely characterizes the, the century in which science, science, scientific knowledge grew exponentially. Many people say, and I think they're probably right, uh, greater expansion of human knowledge, scientific knowledge particularly, in the 20th century than all the centuries preceding it. It's probably true. So what happens, we have this poll taken towards the beginning of the 20th century. What, happened, what would happen if you took the same poll right towards the end of the 20th century? This, with this magnificent growth, incredible growth of science and technology. Well, they did it. The, uh, the Scientific American took this poll again with the same set of questions. Do you believe in God? And again, a God who responds to prayer in 1997. And it turned out, any guesses? What do you, how do you think, what do you think would be the shift from 40%? Anybody who just want to be bold? How, how do you think that would shift over that 20th century? Go ahead. Linda, what do you think? What's that? High. You think more scientists believe in God. Wow, that's a surprising guess. You're wrong, but it's an interesting guess. Um, Rhonda, what do you think? Down to 5%. That's a really, uh, really reasonable uh, guess, and totally wrong also. 40%, unchanged. Unchanged, yeah. And this is Scientific American, so not some kind of a religious fundamentalist group. Uh, and a recent survey indicated that 60% of scientists claim to believe in God. Okay, it's... Not all notions of God are, are the same, okay? In other words, that whole growth of the church scientific and yet 40 to 60% of the people in the scientific community are saying, not us, count us out. We don't believe in this stuff. This church scientific, everything is just matter and blah, blah, blah. And so this is, I'm coming back to this issue of spirit. Spirits horizontally, divine spirit vertically, human spirit, are you anything more than a brain? Those three, spirit, spirit, spirit. And everything hinges on, to my mind, Oh, causality. This is core, a core Buddhist perspective. Core Buddhist. The prachita samudpada, dependent origination, causality, causality. Really core to the Buddhist teachings. Absolutely core. It's true. 
First noble truth, reality of suffering. Second noble truth, cause. Third noble truth, possibility, liberation. Fourth noble truth, cause. What's the path? What do we need to do? It's all about cause and effect, right? Really big. So here's the, here's the issue for us. And why am I spending your time? Because it would be, frankly, a little bit, well, I enjoy doing this, but just in terms of sheer delight in Dharma, I would much prefer to go to the next aphorism. But we're here in the 21st century. And to pretend that we're not is to be delusional. You know, we're here in the 21st century. As soon as you step outside of, actually outside of Thailand, but go back where you're coming from, which is not, probably not a Buddhist country, unless you live here, uh, and hang out with your friends, unless all of your friends are very devout Christian, Buddhist, and so forth, you're going to be encountering people to think what you, we're doing here is a complete waste of time, right? Uh, as one very renowned, actually probably the, the most renowned uh, philosopher of mind in the United States, household name by people who know the field, referred to Buddhist and Christian contemplatives who go off and spend years in retreat. He said the most one can say for them is they're not hurting anybody, which is to say they're completely wasting their time. But, well, okay, whatever. At least they're not, you know, shooting down people and blowing up people like, you know, other religious people do. And that's it. Did he ever interview one contemplative? I kind of doubt it. So is the man a bigot? Yes. yes. If, you, if you make such a, a slanderous, contemptuous statement about people you don't even know, just because they, what, you can't make sense of what you're doing, makes you a bigot, I think. I think that's a bigot. Well, that's a very common view for the church scientific. Uh, he doesn't get censored for that. You know, it's just fine, because he's got a lot of pals, and they're dominating the media. So whenever he belches, you know, the, the science writers are all over it. You know? like flies on ship. So they really get the press. They really get the press. But here's, the, here's a very serious question. Is the universe causally closed? Into, is the physical universe? Because if it is, then all references to spirits are mumbo-jumbo, superstition. All reference to the divine of something, so something transcendent, whether it's the Christian notion of a creator God who does all those things, or the Buddhist notion of, of Dharmakaya, a Buddha, who is manifesting in Sambhogakaya and Nirmanakaya and does a lot of things, because this is actually the culmination to be of greatest service to sentient beings. Uh, and then any notion of meaning, meaningful will, let alone free will, but any notion of humans as being causally responsible, morally responsible, being, having some degree of freedom, being spiritual beings. If the universe is causally closed, then you just slam the door on all of them. The whole of reality is the natural world. The natural world is the physical world. Those are little equation marks there. And many people believe that. The, the, the entire all of reality consists of everything that's real consists only of the universe. The universe is, it can, is equal to the natural world. The natural world equals the physical world. Anything out of the, outside of that is supernatural and therefore non-existent. I know many people who will say exactly what I just said. And so is this true or not? If it is true, then we're having some nice little kind of like uh, nap and cookies here. That's what your meditation is. Like, like kids in kindergarten, having a nap and cookies. That's what I'm teaching you, nap and cookies. A way to kind of unwind a little bit. This is relaxation therapy. That's all it is. If this is, if this is true. So the stakes here are actually very, very high. So is it ca physically ca causally physically closed? That is, can there be no non-physical causes in the natural world? That means in human existence, in the world around us, is everything that is a cause necessarily physical? It's an enormous question. It looked like during the, the infancy of modern, well, no, no, the adolescence, the adolescence. It goes back to uh, Helmholtz, Helmholtz, uh, 18, what was it, 63, I think, something like that. 
brilliant mathematician, very much of a polymath, uh, who's an expert in multiple fields, German scientist. Uh, he came up with a mathematical formulation of the principle of conservation of, of energy. It's a big deal. It's wonderful science. Again, I love the science. Uh, but the principle of conservation of energy, which becomes so thermal energy, it wasn't called electromagnetic then, but it was after James Clerk Maxwell, gravitational energy, um, and so on. There are various types of energy. But in fact, the energy is never lost. And you never get energy from nothing, and it never turns into nothing. You, you light a match, and, the, and the, the, the substance of the wood burns. It turns into smoke. It turns into heat, and so forth. And then that turns into something. But everything's turning into something. And you, the, the equation always comes out even. And that is, you don't lose any energy. You don't get any new energy. And eventually, with the 20th, uh, 20th century physics, it becomes a conservation of mass energy. So it looks like right there in the late 19th century, the latter part of the 19th century, it looks like that looks like where you, you plant the tombstone for religion. Because if, you know, in terms of the activity of the brain, that's physical, right? Mass energy complex there. If there are no influences on the brain that are not physical, then you are simply a product of your physical environment. Diet, uh, diet, physical environment, and then what's happening in the brain, genetics, brain chemistry, and so forth. And that is a complete description of you. And if there's anything that is non-physical, that's fine. But it can just be kind of tapping on the, the, on the outside door of reality saying, let me in, let me in. But it can't come in because it's causally closed system. There are, nothing gets in it's, unless it's physical. And if it's physical, it was already in. Right? So if that's who we are, okay, well, well, welcome to Robotville again. Because, and again, laws of physics, there's no human warm and cushy part of laws of physics, chemistry, and biology. They're, they're amoral. They're not unconscious. They don't care. They're just, you know, laws or patterns. And so stakes here could not be higher. So it looked like when Darwin was coming along, when Darwin was doing his brilliant work, Helmholtz doing his brilliant work, and so forth, it looked like, to many people, well, that means there's no role for spirits, for angels, for devils, for God, for saints. Uh, there's no role for anything. In fact, there's really no role even for human beings except for as animals. And animals are really biological robots according, running according to the laws of physics, chemistry, and biology. So it looked that way. It looked that way. It looked like, boy, that, that, that almost, you did it mathematically. You showed this is a closed system. But it's interesting to note that James Clerk Maxwell, who is regarded by some as maybe the third greatest scientist of all time, Newton number one, Einstein number two, James Clerk, Clerk, Clerk Maxwell is really up there, way up there. He's the one that devised the whole brilliant theory with its mathematics, its four equations. I studied them years ago, rather in detail, of the four, four equations that uh, really summarize the, the mathematics of electromagnetism. Brilliant, absolutely brilliant. He was a devout Christian, and he was doing this in work in the late 19th century. So obviously, he was an outstanding scientist. But somehow, unless he was psychotic, bipolar or something, he felt that his Christian faith, Protestant, very devout Protestant a Christian, uh, was compatible with everything that was known about physics. And he pretty much knew everything about, there was to know about physics at that time. It was more manageable back then. So even there, we see, okay, causally closed, but maybe, maybe we don't know everything yet. Maybe there were some who were not quite willing to be adolescent, know-it-all teenagers, and saying, we know a lot, but there's a lot we don't know. Why don't we keep this an open question? And, and I still believe in God, said James Clerk Maxwell. So, but is this the case or not? Well, this is the 19th century, and it looked like there was very little wiggle room. Because this is, this is the, the golden era, the pinnacle, the diamond jubilee, 
This is the great era of classical physics. Newton and then James Clerk Maxwell, it's a mechanical universe, and everything works by things bumping into each other. You know, that's the only way you have causality. And so when you think as a scientist about causality, you think of something bumping into something else, an electromagnetic field bumping into atoms, atoms bumping into other atoms, atoms you know, influencing or emitting electromagnetic fields. So you can imagine it. You can imagine it. That's cool. So you feel, I can understand this world. Got it. It's fields and waves, particles, space and time. Got it. I think we're just about finished, said Lord, Lord Kelvin. Great physicist, outstanding physicist. I think we pretty well got the tiger by the tail. I think we got it. We're pretty well finished. All right? Except for there was then the 21st century, the 20th century. So Max Planck, 19, 1900, started quantum mechanics. And then we have these, this, this generation of geniuses. And it must, must have been glorious to be amongst them. And the list just goes on and on. Heisenberg, and the, I won't give you all the names, but they were amazing. And Heisenberg was one of those really incredibly brilliant uh, prodigies in his 20s doing groundbreaking work in quantum mechanics. And he came up with something, of course, called the Heisenberg Uncertainty Principle. But one aspect of that, a derivative or interpretation of it, which is universally accepted by people who know the field, is the energy-time Heisenberg Uncertainty Principle. That's not so well known, but anybody who knows physics knows it. That is this area. And this, this points out that the conservation of energy principle, so now we're going back to Helmholtz's great breakthrough, that it's causally closed. This is Heisenberg, and it's absolutely mainstream physics, okay? That the conservation of energy principle is violated regularly, that it's not airtight. Okay, so this is, one, this is one reason this is called a revolution. It changes everything. You cannot look at the world in the same way if you've understood quantum mechanics, not the physical world. Likewise, its partner, relativity theory, you cannot view the world in the same way if you've understood relativity theory. There is no way back to the 19th century if you've understood it. You're, it's not only your beliefs, but your way of viewing physical reality has to be different. If it's not, you haven't gotten the message. Okay? So how is this violated? The shorter the violation, the, 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 shorter the, violation, the greater the violation can be. So very short, short little blips. Quantum fluctuations. A little blip, a little violation. If it's very short, it can be very big. If it's a violation that lasts longer, then it has to be smaller in magnitude. And there are mainstream physicists that believe that the Big Bang itself was caused by a quantum fluctuation, a violation of the energy principle. And it was extremely brief, but it was extremely big. And it's called the Big Bang and welcome to our universe. So in terms of people who know 20th century physics, specifically quantum mechanics, then you know it is no longer true, and that, which means it was never true, that the universe is absolutely, without any exception, bound, causally closed, that there can't possibly, in principle, be any non-physical influences. Because if you're a physicist and all you see is physical phenomena, then you'll see something that happens for no cause. Because you can't, as a physicist, qua physicist, you can't measure non-physical causes because none of your instruments will pick it up. So what would you say? This happened for no reason. This happened for a reason that's off our map. This was a violation, right? So they're not going to talk about angels, spirits, or gods or anything. They're just saying, we have no causal explanation for this. This was a violation of the principle, okay? But mathematically, they have it right that they've nailed it. The shorter it is, the bigger it can be. So now we see that this is very important. It's, it's, it's not true. 
that it's impossible in principle for there to be non-physical influences on your brain, non-physical influences in the environment. It's not true. Not if you know about 20th century physics. If your education as a scientist or as a painter, an artist, an architect, whatever, includes physics, but nothing in the 20th century, if the degree of your physics education, maybe you're a biologist, for example, doesn't go into relativity theory, quantum mechanics, because they consider that's irrelevant to your study of botany or, or you know, biochemistry, whatever, then when you think about physics, all you'll be getting is 19th century physics. Well, the bad news is that with virtually no exception, people who are professionally trained in psychology and or neuroscience, they get only 19th century physics. You go, go through a PhD and never get a course in quantum mechanics or relativity theory, because it's, it's assumed that, hey, look, I'm studying cells, I'm studying neurons, I'm studying animal behavior, I'm studying human behavior, I'm studying rats. These are not quanta. They don't have quanta, quantum properties. They don't have quantum mechanical properties, so it's irrelevant, and none of them are traveling near the speed of light. So that's irrelevant, too. Therefore, I don't need to study 20th century physics. All I need to study is mechanics, Newtonian, maybe some thermodynamics, electromagnetism for sure, but relative and quantum mechanics is not relevant, so they don't study it, which means when they think physics, they think of a physics that occurred when you would drive to your physics lab in a horse and buggy. That's what they think is physics. Okay? That could be a problem. Could be a problem. So, but now let's move into the 21st century, the brilliant, the 20th century, 21st, 20th century first, um, and let's see how well this principle of conservation of mass energy is held up in terms of mainstream science, because quantum mechanics is still off kind of a, it's still a niche, a very important niche, but a lot of physicists don't study it much, you know, because they're doing other things. Well, in terms of looking at the cosmos as a whole, the big picture, what's happening in the universe in terms of the inflationary period of the universe, how galaxies gelled, how they coagulated, how we have these forms, and it's not just sheer splattered chaos all over the place. Uh, and then the fact, some real anomaly that was discovered in the 20th century, and that is not only the universe is expanding, but really weirdly, the rate of expansion, it's accelerating, okay? Everybody knows that in the field of cosmology, that it's expanding, but it's expanding faster and faster and faster. So something seems to be throwing it out. But if you look at these two areas, how come it's so coherent? How come we have these nice, neatly formed galaxies and everything is so neat? Because there's not enough mass, there's not enough matter in the energy. And there's not enough matter in the universe to account for the kind of the relative orderliness of galaxies, planets, stars, and so forth. But in terms of energy, in terms of kind of things that repel, matter doesn't repel, it attracts. So the only th physical things that we know that repel is energy. Energy, right? Like two, two magnets that push each other apart. And so... There's no explanation. There's no, there's no, there's no explanation to, to, that clarifies or makes intelligible how come the universe is expanding at an accelerating rate and how come even within it it's still so orderly. So there, there, it seems like there has to be a lot more matter. If matter is the only thing that holds things together, pulls them together on a big level, uh, well, there's not enough matter in the universe to account for the universe as it is. And there's not enough energy in the universe to account for the increasing expansion of the universe. Well, it turns out to be a rather big deal. 22% um, of the gravitational force in the universe is unaccounted for, 
so it is attributed to dark matter, 74% of, of the force in the universe that opposes gravity, so this would be the expansion, 74% of the force in the universe that opposes gravity and causes the acceleration of the expansion of the universe is also unaccounted for. So this is called dark energy. So if we add those two together, 22%, see if I can do this, 22% plus 74%, wow, that's um, 96%. 96% of the matter and energy in the universe is unaccounted for. If you're going to assume that there is a conservation of mass energy, 96%. This is like, what was that country, that, that company, Exxon? that was doing really fudging their books a lot, and they might speak of, you know, when they say, wait a minute, you don't have those assets, they might say, because they were always pretending to balance their books, but they were fudging it. And so when the auditor comes and say, wait a minute, you don't have those, those assets, you know what they could have said? Yes, we do, they're dark assets. <laughs> yeah, where are they? Nobody can see them. Well, what are they? Nobody knows. But 96% of your assets aren't there. I know, they're dark. <laughs> Why are you laughing? Because this is what the whole physics community says. 96% of our mass energy assets in the universe are dark. Which is to say, we don't know anything about them. Which is to say that the energy, the conservation of mass energy in the universe as a whole is very tidy as long as you overlook the 96% of it. Because 90% just unaccounted for. And I'm following this in the popular press and semi-professional semi press. And there are physicists, cosmologists right now that are seriously doubting the very existence of dark energy and dark matter. So it's basically a placeholder. These are words. They're words that we're going to assume that if anything's holding the universe together, it's got to be physical. The only physical kind of entity or category that we have that could possibly do that would be matter. But there is no such matter that we've measured, so we're going to call it dark matter, but we'll still call it matter. We'll still call it matter. The only thing that we can imagine that would cause the universe to expand like that, that's physical, would be energy. But there's no such energy that, we can, that is in evidence, so we'll call it dark energy, which is just to say, everybody, keep, everybody else, keep the hell out. Because this is our turf, we're physicists, and this is our physical universe, we own it. And even though we can't, we can't account for 96% of what's happening, on this gross level, um, we're all, we've already named it. This belongs to the United States. Or this belongs, you know, it belongs to us. It's dark, we don't know anything about it, but nevertheless, it's matter, take our word for it. It's physical. Why? Because, well, everything that exists is physical. So although physicists don't know the nature of dark matter or dark energy, they're confident that these unknown entities existing in the objective universe, independently of our measurements, you can't measure them, do fit within our human notion of physical. But the designation is clearly tautological. If something exists, even if its nature is completely unknown, it is declared to be physical. So the very definition, bear in mind, human beings define physical in the first place. They didn't get it from nature or God or anything else. Human beings. And moreover, they've been defining it repeatedly over and over again since the time of Galileo. It's not one static right answer. It keeps on morphing, morphing. And so what they've done now is simply to say, if it exists, it's physical. And so fit the, the bandwidth, bandwidth of the category physical keeps on getting bigger. 
Because if it exists, it's physical, damn it. And if, it, if we didn't include it in physical yesterday, well, we're just going to expand physical, so everything is physical. Everything that's not physical is supernatural, and that doesn't exist. So this seems like funny science. And I'd like to run a thought experiment here. If we consider that we don't know what dark matter and dark energy are, we're just using those names as placeholders that someday we hope to understand what's actually holding the universe together in terms of its coherence and causing it to expand. In terms of explanatory power, let's do a little thought experiment. And that is, what's the difference between attributing between the hypotheses about dark matter and dark energy, so there they are, physical, rather than attributing what holds the universe together, this dark matter, instead of calling it dark matter, why don't we call that um, seraphim? And that which is calling the universe to expand is cherubim. Okay. So, it's, so this is another way of explaining um, you know, the 96%, that it's seraphim. Seraphim are holding the universe together. You know? And then what's calling it to expand? Cherubim. You know, angels. Angels. And they do everything that you think dark matter and dark energy do, they do, but they do that. It's seraphim and cherubim. In terms of explanatory power, why is this any worse than saying dark matter and dark energy? And since you don't know what the hell you're talking about anyway, why not call them angels? And by the way, of course, they're non-physical. Non-physical, seraphim and cherubim. You know, and they're doing it. This is just as scientific as saying it's dark matter or dark energy, since you don't even know what those terms are referring to. You're just it's a placeholder. But no, I'm a theologian. No dark matter, dark energy, seraphim and cherubim. So I don't see any difference in terms of causal efficacy. There's one, oh, that's so interesting. But this is 21st century Lojong, seven-point mind training, in case you are still wondering. Okay. And then we have this one. Let me come back briefly. In terms of one, so it's anomaly. 96% of the matter energy in the universe is an anomaly. Don't know what happened to it or if it's there at all, or whether it is, in fact, matter and energy. But now let's come back to where we live, okay? Back to where we live, to this wonderful misnomer, the euphemism of placebo effect. Now, this is indisputably real. For a long time, a lot of materialists said, no, no, it can't be, can't be, can't be. Oh, okay, it's okay. Okay. Because there's, the pharmaceutical industry is spending billions of dollars to try to push it out so they can find, test the efficacy of their drugs. That's why we have all these double-blind experiments. They're very expensive. You know. So that you can say it's not because of the placebo because of our drug, because we're selling you the drug, not the placebo effect. As one man who used to be the head, the uh, head of research and development for one of the major pharmaceutical industries told me, really a heavy duty, you know, he used to be a major academic, then went into the into the commercial commercial realm. He said for to, for drugs across the board, I mean that's a big bandwidth, right? From arthritis to who knows what, the whole bandwidth. He said, when you take a drug for anything, statistically speaking, on average, one half of the benefit you're getting from the drug is placebo effect. One half. You're believing it's going to work, expecting it will work, wanting it to work, having faith in the person who gave it to you, having faith in the pharmaceutical industry that sold it to you, especially if it's expensive. It better work. It must work. It will work. You know? One half the benefit is placebo effect. And I immediately said, well, then in that case, they should, if that's the case, and he's speaking from a professional, you know, professional in the field, very highly placed. I said, but if that's the case, then they should sell them all at half price. 
I mean, after all, you're giving half the benefits, so they should give you a 50% refund. And they haven't. I thought that was a very reasonable suggestion. They didn't follow up on it. Maybe they have more of a profit, a profit motive than I anticipated. But the placebo effect, there's been a lot of research, very good research, again, wonderful science, on the unexplained causal efficacy of the placebo effect, which of course is a mental effect. And if there's anything less tangible, less physical than faith, I mean, can you think of even one physical attribute that faith has? And belief and confidence and trust and hope and aspiration. I mean, these are all utterly quintessential subjective qualities that have no physical attributes whatsoever, and they cannot be measured physically. If they're not non-physical, I don't know what is, right? And it's that that's doing it. It's that that's doing it. There's just no question about it. They're calling it placebo effect. That's just red herring, you know, big lie. So that's non-physical, and it happens. But now, to what extent does it happen? Well, I did some research on this. There's, again, pretty much all of today, and I think, yeah, it will be, tomorrow's talk is going to be really based on the research I did for a book called Meditations of, of a Buddhist Skeptic, uh, a manifesto for the mind sciences and contemplative practice. Um, it's one of the least read books in the English language, I believe. <laughs> I think I managed to craft it in such a way that I would turn off an enormous number of Buddhists and turn off an enormous number of non-Buddhists, so I did a very thorough job. I think it's quite effective. So these placebo effects, it turns out that they are like real drugs, you know, what you buy over the counter or get a prescription for, because they can cause side effects like itching, diarrhea, and nausea. This is really established fact, that they've done so many studies with placebos, and what they'll tell the people in the group is that randomly, well, actually not randomly selected, very carefully selected, two groups, one gets the medicine, the other one gets the placebo, right? And they're all told, of course, you don't know whether you're getting the medicine or the placebo, but we will tell you that if you're taking the medicine, um, and, for, and we're sorry about this, we apologize, but some of the side effects of taking the actual medicine uh, is that, for example, you'll have itching, diarrhea, and nausea. But hopefully that'll be worth it, because you know, this will help you with the disease, the problem you're suffering from. So they've done this as many times. This is not speculative. It's empirical. Um, they give the medicine out with, with this, you know, this disclaimer, nausea, itching, and, and diarrhea. And then people, this time, happened time and time again, people who get the placebo but, feel but believe they're getting the real medicine start having itching, diarrhea, and nausea. And it's entirely brought on because they believe they're taking the medicine and they've understood that that's a side effect of the medicine like a real drug. So the placebo is very ingenious. Now, in terms of the um, other effects, and this is, again, I took this straight from a solid, solid research, uh, the placebo effect can lead to, just as a sampling, changes in pulse rate, blood pressure, electrical skin resistance, gastric function, penis engorgement, hair growth, and skin conditions. That's a pretty widespread. And if you think, if I had, let's make this attractive. I have $10 million here. Okay? I th it is the thought experiment. I got $10 million here. And I'm going to turn to Carmen and say, Carmen, uh, here's, here's um, a placebo. Take this and placebo, and, um, it is, but it's a placebo. 
and uh, see if now that you, and I'm going to tell you, I would like you to now, um, since you really want this 10 million, I'm going to give you this 10 million dollars if you do what I'm going to tell you to do. Please now um, alter your electrical skin resistance. And I want to see some more hair growing as well. And I'd like to see your skin condition change. I won't ask you for penis engorgement because I think that's unreasonable. <laughs> and do that. I'll give you as long as you like. Give you two, how, how long do you need? Two weeks? A month? Uh, but this is it. I mean, electrical skin resistance. And blood pressure, too. I don't just throw that. I want you to lower your blood pressure by this amount. Electrical and blah, blah. And here's two. So take, take a month. Take as long as you like. What do you think the chances are? I've just given her a big reward if she can do it. I think you can't, right? Don't have a clue. You don't even know how to start. I don't. And yet, if you believe, it happens. Something from that information coming in, this will happen, and you're believing it, triggers exactly those physiological processes in the body that yield, that cause what you expect to happen, even though you don't have a clue what those physiological processes are. That is so astonishing that it should just make one real. But I'm, I'm sorry, but this is magic. Was this a demon that did it, a spirit? I mean, come on, this is just too, way too spooky. Nobody can believe. Are you, are you kidding me that this is empirical evidence for this? It's impossible. Common as a brain, for heaven's sakes. And this stuff, faith, belief, all that, you know, we like mumbo-jumbo. It's, it's, it's just nothing. But, oh, it's not nothing. Oh, man. This is utterly a mystery. But as I quoted a couple of days ago, scientists dealing with this, they just stop asking the question. So I, I, I stop asking why. Let's take one more. Um, Gonzalo, would you do, would you, you don't need to do anything special, but I'm going to ask you to participate in an experiment with me. I think I've run it once before, but for reminder's sake. It's very innocent, it won't harm you. Okay? It's an experiment. Uh, and I'd like you to, will you agree to do what I'm saying as long as it's uh, not harmful and you have no objection to it? Yeah, it's it, it, totally innocent. You can take my word. And if you want to st stop, just say, I'm, I'm stopping, okay? But it's going to be really simple. You'll see. Okay, you ready? Uh, Gonzalo, uh, would you please raise your right hand up to your shoulder and then bring it back down again? Oh, man, he did. Thank you. The experiment's over. Oh, no, not quite over. But for the record, anybody on the podcast, he did it. I just made these noises. Would you please? I just made these noises, but they're meaningful noises. Would you please raise your right hand and then put it back down again? He did it right when I asked him to do it. That's not a coincidence, you know. That's so, okay. Now, now set phase two of the experiment. You ready? You know what I'm going to say, don't you? Gonzalo. I, I, I wasn't saying please laugh. I was making meaningless noises. But what's coming out of my mouth, physically, is indistinguishable from, please raise your right arm. It's air. It's air. With a little bit of frequent, a little bit of conditioning of it, but that's it. It's air, right? And the sound waves, of course. It's, it ripples in the atmosphere, sound waves, but sound waves are just physical. But they're sound waves of sound waves. And please raise your right arm. They're just sound waves. What's transmitted physically, it's the same. The difference, of course, is that in the first one there was information, and in the second one there's no information, except for I look a little bit weird, right? Information has no physical properties. This is semantic information, meaningful information. Please raise your right hand. 
that has no physical properties at all. It has no location physically. If you look in the sound waves, can you find, oh, there's the information? It's not there. It has no location, it has no speed, no velocity, no mass, no spin, no electric charge. It has no physical properties whatsoever. None. And yet, this transmission of information caused something physical. His hand went up and his hand went down. Something non-physical caused something physical. And it happens all the time. Information is not physical. It has no physical attributes. You cannot measure it physically. Minds can detect, intelligent minds can detect information, meaningful information. But a machine can't. It just picks up waves, particles, pressure, whatever. But information is not physical. And information does have causal efficacy in our world. Of course, that's part and parcel of placebo effect. If I don't tell you what this placebo is going to do, then it won't do it. Right? Information has causal efficacy. We are, after all, in the information age. We should start taking that seriously. So are there non-physical influences in the universe? Indisputably, yes. Is there any materialistic explanation for them? Indisputably, no. Let's broaden this out to a great big one. This will be a nice leap off for tomorrow. Um, and that is, bear in mind, this, this latter part of the 19th century was really the, 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 the early adolescence, like age 15 or 16, 14, 15, 16, like that of modern science in this kind of this metaphor. There was enormous confidence, enormous confidence by so many scientists, and for good reason. They had unveiled so many things in physics, chemistry, biology, the brilliant work of Darwin, and then we have Mendel also, the same period, 1870s, the beginning of genetics. I mean, what a triumph. No wonder they were confident. And so during that time, there was an English mathematician and philosopher by the name of William Kingdon Clifford, who died in 18, had a rather short life, 1845 to 1879. He made a statement that in principle, it's been quoted, paraphrased, uh, and promoted extensively in the 20th and 21st century. And here's what he says. It is wrong always, everywhere, and for everyone. That's big. Caught your attention? It is wrong always, everywhere, and for everyone to believe anything upon insufficient evidence. You can imagine I'm just licking my chops with this. <laughs> this is going to be so much fun. <laughs> this is th this right here. Uh, we have our early 20th century uh, religion bashers. They're having a lot of fun, I'm sure, because they always congratulate each other. But people like um, oh, Richard Dawkins you know, wrote a whole book bashing religion. And Christopher Hitchens made quite a name for himself doing that. Daniel Dennett, uh, big, time, big time breaking the spell, breaking the delusional spell of religion. I think he really must have enjoyed that. And then there are others, Edward O. William, uh, Ed, Edward o. Wilson, right, outstanding sociobiologist, loved bashing religion, taking us out of the dark ages of religion. Uh, Sam Harris, that's pretty much all he's known for is he loves bashing religion. Uh, and they're always quoting this one. It's this sharp divide. We scientists, we follow that. We follow the evidence. We don't believe anything unless there's sufficient evidence. This is an intellectual gold standard. We're following it. All you people on the other side, you religious people, you're doing just the opposite. You believe in omniscience of the Buddha. You believe in God. You believe in angels. You believe in the, in the immortal spirit. You believe in blessings. You believe in holy water. You, man, you believe in all this crap. 
supernatural crap for which there's no evidence whatsoever. You believe just because you want to believe. You people have, I don't know, mush bananas for brains. I don't know what. We are brights. This is the self-appellation by Daniel Dennett. We're the brights. And you might, if you're smart enough, you might figure what that implies for you. We're the brights. Now, can you figure it out? What are you? Yeah, maybe you got it. Maybe you didn't. And so science, really, the scientists for the last 400 years, our triumphs is because we have just followed the... We don't believe in anything. We scientists and philosophers who are, you know, really philosophers of science, really part of the same club. They're church scientific. Uh, we don't believe in anything unless there's... Hypotheses will be enter, enter, entertained, but we don't believe anything until there's sufficient evidence, and then we do. But you religious people of all sorts, and philosophers of all sorts, especially the religious people, you're the worst, uh, because you believe in stuff without sufficient evidence. And so this is a big divide, and it's being promoted and promoted and promoted, and it's one of the biggest lies of the 20th century. It's unbelievable how they can say it with a straight face. You kind of wonder, who, who's the stupid one here? Are you the stupid one, or do you just think that we're all got mush for brains, that we're illiterate and we can't read about the history of science? We'll just start here. It's about dinner time. But just for starters, let's take the three greats, the first three greats in the, in the scientific revolution, Copernicus, Kepler, and Galileo. Big names. Copernican revolution, Galileo, the first one. Kepler was amazing. Amazing mathematician. And he didn't even have any instruments. He, he relied purely on the mathematical data, the observations by Tycho Brahe, the Danish astronomer, who had no, astron uh, had no telescope either, but these meticulous, incredibly precise observations of the relative movements of the planets uh, the, uh, with, with, with respect to the background stars. And coming up on just pure mathematics, the three, the three laws of planetary motion of Kepler. It's breathtaking. Kep uh, Copernicus mathematics is breathtaking. And he's bucking about 2,000 years of tradition of an unquestioned assumption that the earth has to be in the center because so many of the Greek philosophers and, of course, the Bible, earth is center, earth is center. And he was willing to question that and question a, the Ptolemaic system, the geocentric system with all of its eccentrics and epicycles, all these ad hoc explanations that were thrown in to, account, to, make it, to save the appearances and keep to your core belief that the earth is at the center of the universe. And God created us right in the center, of course. Well, these three, Copernicus, Kepler, and Galileo, they all believed in the heliocentric theory, Copernicus' theory, before there was any compelling evidence to, to affirm it or even to prefer it over the Ptolemaic system with its many ad hoc eccentric epicycles, which is to say both mathematical theories accounted for the data more or less equally well. One was not clearly superior. One was simpler, for sure. But then who said simple has to be more accurate? And the other one relies on kind of what's obvious common sense is, hey, look, the sun, sun's going around the earth, just like the moon is. And we are in the center. Just look, everything's going around us. And so, but in fact, the, neither one was, had any more evidence than the other one. But they all, these three pillars of the modern science revolution all believed it before there was evidence. Because you could, you could choose either way. And there were very good scientists or natural philosophers who chose the other way. But before there was evidence, they were totally convinced, especially Galileo, Kepler also, totally convinced. Although, again, they both have the same explanatory power. It was only Galileo who began his astronomical studies with the firm conviction that this was already true, that he <coughs> refined the telescope, used it in wonderful ways, discovered the phases of Venus, 
first person to do that. That was the first, and the first empirical evidence that it indisputably refuted the Ptolemaic system. Venus can't have phases if the Earth is in the center of everything. It's impossible, but it happened. So the Ptolemaic system is wrong. Before that, there was no compelling evidence one way or another. You could go either way, intelligently, rationally. But Galileo came up with the evidence, and he pro it's now speculation. It's very doubtful that he would have had the ambition, the drive, the perseverance to develop the telescope, to use it, to focus in on Venus and the other planets with the rigor, the sustained perseverance that he did if he didn't already believe that the sun was in the center. But he did already believe that. Then he found evidence to corroborate what he already believed. It was utterly tendentious. That is, he was looking for evidence that would corroborate what he already believed, even though the evidence wasn't already there. But that enabled him to find evidence that was conclusive. That's terrible science. Oh, and it's completely illegitimate, according to this principle, which is the, the motto of the church scientific. In other words, the three people that more than anybody else started the scientific revolution, they violated that principle. And because they violated it, the scientific revolution happened. That's kind of cute. Let's have just one more because it's so juicy. The greatest scientist, I think it's probably correct, and people much more knowledgeable than I have come to this conclusion, Isaac Newton. The childhood, the brilliant prodigy childhood of modern science. Isaac Newton, an experimentalist, a theoretician, mathematician, the whole, like Galileo, but Galileo on steroids. I mean, the man was amazing. And so he's known for his three laws, for his calculus, for his work in light, optics, and so forth and so on. Just stunningly brilliant science. Uh, and then there's the other side of Newton. Newton considered himself to be one of a select group of indi individuals who were specially chosen by God for the task of understanding biblical scripture. He regards himself as a prophet. He also believed that our world was to be replaced with a new one upon a transition to an era of divinely inspired peace in the year 2060. So you youngsters, you have something to look forward to. And that is our world coming to an end, and there's going to be a golden era, a divine era, a marvelous era, the coming, second coming, presumably, in the year 2060. Newton. Hold that date. It appears that one of the main goals of his alchemical research, and he, de he developed one of the greatest alchemical libraries in all of Europe, took it really seriously, and it did a lot of experimentation in alchemy. It appears that one of his main goals in his alchemical research was the discovery of the Philosopher's Stone. Of course, this is a material believed to turn base metals into gold. He took it very seriously, did a lot of research, and perhaps to a lesser extent, he was very keen on the discovery of the elixir of life, very keen on that as well. And he reported to believe that an alchemical demonstration producing a dendritic growth of silver, in quotation, so you can check it out, dendritic growth of silver, from solution was evidence that materials, metals, possessed a sort of life. He believed that metals actually were, were alive. Okay, that's Newton. Uh, so imagine young Isaac Newton coming, the same person, but born in you know, 1990, um, very bright, clearly, a prodigy, a brilliant. Uh, but he's applying to, um, he's gotten through high school, managed to get good grades, and he's applying to MIT. And he tells, you know, what are your background interests? And he said, well, I'd like to study physics at MIT, and by the way, I believe I'm a prophet. 
and I, I'm divinely chosen to interpret the Bible. That's, that's one of my extracurricular affairs. And I'd like to come to MIT because I'm really interested in developing the Philosopher's Stone, the Elixir of Life, and, st studying and understanding how metals actually are alive. And please give me a scholarship. What do you think, the admissions board? Do you think they'll like that? Do you think you'll get in? Or imagine he starts talking like this as an undergraduate. Do you think he'll get to graduate school? Uh, imagine he gets through graduate school and he's looking for a job. Imagine he's gotten a job and he's looking for tenure. Imagine he's gotten tenure, he's looking to get published. Um, how do you think he's going to do, Isaac Newton, the greatest scientist of all time? I think he's going to wind up a plumber or a street, a hand paddler. I'm a prophet. The end of the world is coming. <laughs> you know? uh, the man looks like a kook. Did he believe anything without insufficient evidence? Or without sufficient evidence? The greatest scientist of all time? It turns out, we'll look into a little bit, a little bit more. Sorry if it bores you, but we are practicing the 21st century. And Buddhism is either intellectually credible in the 21st century or it's not. If we don't have an answer to those who are materialists, well, lots of luck. Then all we have is a religion that's faith-based. And that's kind of sad. There's a lot of them. So, we'll look further. We'll look further. But it opens the universe up in a way that you can start to breathe freely. See, aha, science is still open. This is not religion versus science. It's science is still open. It's not causally closed. It doesn't have the, the adolescent pomposity to think, that there's nothing out there of any significance that we've not already understood in principle. My encouragement here, as I'm practicing Donglen to these people I've mentioned, is may you swiftly grow out of adolescence because you really, because you wield such authority, you're really harming the world. You're undermining any sense of moral responsibility and the young people are getting the message. They're not stupid doing a lot of damage. You're strangling the scientific imagination. You're reducing human existence in a criminal way. And unless you have evidence to support your beliefs that is absolutely compelling, and please be more modest and say you're expressing opinions, your beliefs, and that's perfectly fine. Then I throttle back. You just present these as beliefs and opinions, no problem. No problem. People believe all kinds of kooky things. Many people believe that I think. I believe a lot of kooky things. No problem. No problem. But when you're saying this is scientific fact, you're lying to us. And you're using immense authority to lie to us. These are not truths. These are your opinions. They're not corro corroborated facts. And little things like the placebo effect, the causal efficacy of information, you have no explanation for. And you'll never get any explanation as long as you're locked into this little paper bag that you put over your head that everything is physical and emergent properties are physical. It's a nonsense theory, but if you want to believe it, that's fine. No problem. But you should really stop dominating government policy, the funding of scientific research, the media, and education. And you're doing that. You're doing that. And you're not even a majority of the scientific community. You're like, excuse me, I'm going to be political very briefly and we'll go off to dinner, but you're like the right wing of the Republican Party right now. You know, you're manipulating, dominating the entire party, which has a lot of very intelligent, reasonable, good-hearted people in it. 
Republican Party. It's undeniable. A lot of good people there. But this one little faction, this is totally politics, so turn it off, I'm almost finished, if you don't like what I'm saying. But this one little, has, has now stopped the US government. They're acting like spoiled brats, juvenile delinquents, refusing to let the, the move, government move forward. And they're not even majority of their own party. It's about 80 of them, which is a minority of the Republican Party. But they got a stranglehold on all the rest of all of them, of the Republicans. And they're freezing the government, and they seem to be very happy about that. They're asphyxiating the imagination of the Republican Party, let alone the government, and then damaging the whole country. I think that's really morally irresponsible. That's politics, about all the politics I'll do for this whole time. But I'm really concerned about this, and I see the parallel that these really hardcore, adamant, militant, closed-minded, bigoted, scientific materialists, some of whom are in the scientific community, sometimes out, are doing the same thing. They're dominating the whole scientific scene. You can't publish, you can't talk, you can't get funding, you can't teach it in schools, you can't teach anything that violates their metaphysical beliefs, but they're a minority. They're only about 10% of the American public. They're a minority of the scientific community, and yet they're dominating the scene. It's really awful. It's so sad, and if it were just we differ in opinion, no big deal, but they're doing so much damage. So if anybody can rescue science from this intellectual tyranny, because that's what, and methodological tyranny, it has to be people working outside of the scientific context. And I don't know of any who are better equipped with a history, a track record of major successes and discoveries than the contemplative traditions of the world. Buddhism is a very strong one not the only one. So I feel this very passionately. I could be dead wrong, but um, I've not seen the evidence that I'm dead wrong. So we will have more tomorrow. If you really don't want to hear it, just tell your buddy. I've heard all I want to hear. You can stay in your room. No big deal. I don't care. Enjoy your evening. Part one. <laughs>